Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with David Karp, the author of The Move On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Dave, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you and to have read your book, The Move On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy. This is a book that anyone who's listening to a podcast probably will want to read because of the selection that we have into our pool of listeners is probably particularly interested in the kinds of things that you're talking about. And so this is a, an additional endorsement for the, the people listening. I really enjoyed this book a lot. And maybe before we could get to talking about the book itself, you could talk a little bit about your uh, your unique perspective, which which I think actually does influence this book and, and makes it, um, in addition to uh, a research uh, uh, book, it also has has very um, clear applications. I think some of those because of your background. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're at now and where you were when you wrote the book, and so what some of your background is? Sure, uh, happy to do so. Um, so I'm currently uh, about to start as an assistant professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Uh, I spent the past two years as an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. I'm actually a political scientist by training, though. Uh, my degree comes from University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I think the, the way that this book came about, this is intentionally what I call a hybrid book. It's speaking to two audiences, uh, and that's advocacy professionals and also political scientists and academics. Um, that came up because... Uh, as it happened, my first year in graduate school, 2004, uh, I ended up running for the national board of the Sierra Club. Uh, I'd been involved with the Sierra Club since high school. I had headed their student-run arm in 1999. Uh, and due to a, actually a hostile takeover attempt uh, of the board of directors, I found myself running while I was also starting graduate school. Uh, fellow academics can probably guess that that's not a great way to divide your time while you're trying to learn the literature and learn the field. Um, but that meant that while I was in graduate school, I had this experience of both learning political science and learning politics through the classroom, uh, but then also being at these board meetings and seeing how uh, practitioners deal with uh, the, the same sets of issues. And in particular, what I started noticing since this was 2004, Howard Dean had just happened, uh, and we were really starting to figure out the ways that the Internet could be useful for offline politics and for elections. Uh, is I was starting to notice what that meant for organizations like the Sierra Club, the issues that we were dealing with at the board level, uh, which weren't so much a matter of how do we generate a lot of e-petitions, but instead were questions of how is membership being redefined and how is fundraising changing, and what does that mean for the way that we do our work, the way we engage our members. So noticing that no one was really engaging with that question, because it, it just wasn't something that was reaching academic audiences, it was something that was only happening at the board level, that ended up becoming sort of the core question that I did in my dissertation, which then has turned into this larger research project in this book. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and I think as you described, the two audiences are very well served, um, though I suspect there are some advocacy professionals who will re- pick up this book and read it and, and read this as a you know, end-of-the-world mm-hmm. book for them because some of your um, – well, some of the conclusions you reach suggest that their futures may either have to radically change or they will go the way of Betamax and, and such. And so let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, uh, you know, I suspect writing about technology and politics is sometimes difficult because our field, 
you know, so replete with people who, who may not be enthusiastic or interested or maybe even hostile towards technology. And so I wonder what your initial reaction was to the talk of Internet-based organizing. You describe an encounter towards the end of the book that you had. I think it was in the late 90s with a technology startup. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe you could just recount briefly that, that encounter and, and how it kind of sets you on a path towards what ultimately is writing this book. Sure. So that, that was in uh, 1999. Uh, when I was running the Sierra Student Coalition, uh, and I bumped into a guy named Peter Sherman at a conference who had launched this. He, he was the executive director of this new tech startup that was working on tech and politics, mostly e-petitions. And we chatted for a while, and he used to work for the Sierra Student Coalition, so we talked about my organization, we talked about his new organization. Uh, and then when he turned and walked away, I turned to a friend of mine and I said, oh, wow, that thing is a joke, it's bound to fail. Uh, and during the dissertation research, I came across his name, uh, it turned out that Peter Sherman was the first executive director of MoveOn. Um, incidentally, I'm also terrible at picking stocks. Right. Um, but yeah, so that that actually, I think, particularly indicates the way that online organizing has changed. That in 1999, we were primarily using the Internet to make the older tools that we had, things like petitions, marginally more efficient. Uh, and political organizers like myself back then knew that Petitions alone don't change the world. You use petitions as a first tactic to get a campaign going, to build a list, to fundraise off of, and to take higher-level tactics off of. Um, and so that alone didn't really impress me. And then by 2003, 2004, MoveOn had turned into this much bigger phenomenon, largely because with the Iraq War mobilization, they became the center organizing space for people turning out on the streets. Uh, that's also when their list grew from... Uh, around a million to 3.7 million. Uh, they're now, I think, 7 million uh, large. Um, so the organization changed as online organizing changed. Uh, but you're right, that creates this real problem for academics because um, there's uh, only a small set of us who really study technology, and then the technology is changing so fast that, you know, I, I see in 2011, I saw a lot of very good research that came out that was done in 2006. Well, if you're studying 2006 technology and publishing in 2011, then you've already, in a sense, dated yourself. Because 2006, I mean, you sure aren't talking about Twitter, because Twitter didn't exist yet. Um, yeah. Yeah, oh, another example that I think I mentioned briefly in the book, but, uh, you know, in 2008, we spent a lot of time looking at YouTube and how YouTube was used in the 2008 election. Uh, I sometimes raise the question to my fellow academics, you know, how come nobody is studying the 2004 election and how that was used, how YouTube was used then? And the answer, of course, is because YouTube wasn't created until 2005. We have an N of 1, we're about to have an N of 2 in YouTube and presidential elections. Uh, and so since these technologies change so fast, uh, that changes the types of research that you can do. Uh, it's the reason why I do this organizational research, is that while the technologies that get used by organizations are changing, uh, and they, they change the set of uh, what communication scholars call affordances that uh, users can engage with through the technologies, um, the new organizations, that organizational layer of politics, uh, that operates, at, that, that changes at a different rate. Um, I would say that, um, though I'm one of the few people that studies the Internet and organizations, uh, another one of the people, uh, Bruce Bember, actually, he, my work is based partially on a book that he did in 2003. Uh, Bruce and a couple co-authors just wrote a new book in 2012 called Collective Action and Organizations, uh, which is a very good book. I recommend it to all your listeners as well. Um, but there's only a few of us that are studying this. Um, but the nice thing is we've actually had very positive reaction from the rest of the field. 
um, I'd say generally there's a sense amongst political scientists that uh, move on is something worth studying. And the, this new generation of political organizations uh, is a puzzle that they're curious about, even though they're not researching it. Uh, and so, you know, me coming along in 2012 and saying I can explain what's going on there and I can explain what it means for the other phenomena we study, uh, that's been really pretty well received, I'd say, by the field. Yeah, and, and as you sort of allude to, rather than examine, you know, in many ways how technology has been adopted by existing groups, either with a large-scale uh, survey or, or um, data collection, that way you, you really focus on a series of groups that employ these different models of net roots activism, net roots mobilization, I wonder if you could briefly outline the three models that you develop in your book. They they sort of move into the, the use these organizations as, as as a hub. But what are these three different models? Uh, I, let me highlight one point before I answer that question because you just touched Please. on maybe the more, most important piece in the book, particularly for those who are familiar with Bruce Bember's work. Um, I'm arguing in this book that what we're seeing in technology and interest group politics is a disruptive innovation. Uh, Bruce, in his 2003 book. Uh, information in American politics or information in American democracy. I'm suddenly blanking on the name. Um, but in his 2003 book, Bruce actually pointed out that we were going to see changes in membership, changes in organizational structure, all these things that I'm finding in my 2012 book. Um, but what I'm picking up on that he didn't back then uh, is that this is a disruption, that it's not, it's not the leading organizations, the Sierra Clubs of the world, that lead the way in adopting new technology. Instead, it's a new generation of organizations. Uh, and that this disruption, as you already hinted at, carries some pretty dire consequences for the older groups. Um, and the reason for this, what, what I actually define as the move-on effect, isn't the effectiveness of move-on, uh, but rather what it is is a, is a generation shift in membership and fundraising regimes. So groups like move-on define membership fundamentally differently than organizations like the Sierra Club uh, or any of the organizations that have been founded since the 1970s or so. Um, we can think of it as there's sort of three definitions of membership that are lurking out there today. The first is the oldest definition of membership, uh, and that's membership as showing up and attending meetings. Uh, students at college campus groups, they're still participating in that manner, um, where to be a member of, say, the College Democrats, pretty much means that you go and you attend meetings, you hold office, you participate directly. Um, and that definition of membership was sort of the only game in town until the 1960s, 1970s, when the rise of direct mail fundraising, which again is technological, uh, but the rise of direct mail fundraising allowed organizations to redefine membership as check writing. So this is the rise of armchair activism. Uh, and that redefinition of membership and the membership relationship also provided a revenue stream of direct mail, you know, small dollar contributions every year, that allowed organizations to build large offices concentrated in D.C., really developing, develop their lobbying capacities, so you see changes in tactics, you see changes in membership communications, you see changes in funding, which then also affect the types of organizations that you get. Uh, and that was a generation shift that happened in the 70s. Uh, today, if you are on MoveOn's email list or any other uh, email list of an organization founded in the past dozen years or so, then congratulations, you're a member. Uh, most MoveOn members, it appears, don't actually realize that they are members. They know they're on the list, but they don't realize that me that entails membership. Uh, and that's because the organizations have re redefined it, and then users or, or members are just kept catching up with it now. But so we have a change in membership. That also changes fundraising, where fundraising is no longer done through those annual donations, but instead through targeted emails uh, directed at the issue of the day. So MoveOn is fantastic, and these other new groups are fantastic 
at raising small-dollar contributions to put a commercial on the air. Uh, those contributions, though, are targeted towards the action that they're engaging in, which means that they're not as useful for infrastructure. Uh, if you've got a large staff of 300 people and field offices around the country, you used to rely on your, your direct mail membership donations to pay to keep the lights on. Uh, and now that funding stream is going away because people don't pay, uh, don't write checks so much anymore. Um, and instead, it's very easy for organizations with low infrastructure costs and low staff to work on the issues of the day. But it's a lot harder for the older organizations to pay for that infrastructure that they built up over the past 30 or 40 years. Um, now, and mm-hmm. just, just to interrupt real quickly, and just how small are we talking? You, you describe move on in, in great detail. Mm-hmm. But but I think that that most people wouldn't even realize what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Move on has forty how, staff. How big an, zero yeah, office. how big an office do we need? How big a conference room do we need to hold the entirety of Move On? And and would an office even be the appropriate place to put them? Exactly. So Move On has about forty staff around the country. They have zero office space. Um, now a lot of the peer organizations. This is the Move On effect. It's not just about Move On. A lot of the peer organizations do have say one office. Uh, I've met with a bunch of people in those organizations in New York or D.C. Uh, their offices are small. We're talking about a room. They'll have a conference room. Um, but, you know, the the amount of actual real estate that these new organizations take up compared to the old organizations. Uh, I walked by the AFL-CIO building uh, yesterday in D.C. It's huge. It's beautiful. I've been to the uh, uh, Amnesty International offices a few years ago. The chairs in the Embassy International offices are gorgeous and expensive and look very pleasant to sit in. Uh, all of that is infrastructure costs that you could pay for in the old manner. Uh, you can't pay for anywhere near as well in this latest decade. Uh, and that's fine news for the new organizations because they don't have that infrastructure anyway. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Move On is probably the largest organization active today and 40 staff, zero office space. Yeah, it, it really does make the, all these... Um Occasional controversies about White House meetings being held at coffee shops with lobbyists, mm-hmm. a really different thing. If the lobbyist literally doesn't have an office, then the Caribou Coffee would seem like the most logical place. The question is why Caribou Coffee is, hasn't figured out how to charge better hourly rates for all of these meetings to be held, because you do give the impression that many of the people who are, you know, quote, working for Move On and, and other organizations are either working out of their house or working at the library or working at the coffee shop. It, the, the extent to which this is this is a whole new ball game is, I think, really expressed well right, yeah. in your book. Right. You also, in addition to these dis, this, uh, these descriptions, you do some data collection. You put together this blogosphere authority index. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you tell just a little bit about the method that you use to put it together and the ways in which you you use it to in in the book. Sure. So the blogosphere authority index I designed back in two thousand seven. Uh, I should note it's actually currently offline as I'm designing the the second version of it. Because uh, being built in 2007, enough new things have changed in the blogosphere that I need to update the tools a little bit. Um, but it actually came out of a very, very simple discussion um, where I, I was describing the different types of Netroot, Netroots organization. Uh, and they include this move-on model, which is hub and spokes. So you've got one central organization that communicates out to a nationwide membership. Uh, you also have a neo-federated model that we see only nascent versions of. But Democracy for America is a good example where they've got strong local chapters that do uh, online to offline organizing, um, you know, face-based organizing like we're used to from generations past. Uh, but they use the Internet to make that cheaper, to make it simpler. Uh, and then we also have uh, these online communities of interest, which are community political blogs. Uh, so one of the points that I make in the book, and I made in some previous research publications, 
uh, is that if you look at the political blogging site Daily Coast, one of the largest blogs in the country, uh, that's an advocacy group. We don't usually think of it as an advocacy group, and a lot of the research on blogs have treated them as citizen journalism, so they haven't really known what to do with Daily Coast. Uh, but the writers for Daily Coast aren't engaging in journalistic acts. They're not going out and trying to do investigative work. They're not going and interviewing people so much. Uh, what they're doing is they're campaigning. They're choosing priority issues, and they're organizing around them. They are uh, endorsing candidates. They're fundraising for candidates. They're fundraising a, a lot of money, six figures for, for su- supporting candidates. Uh, that's all the activities that we know uh, advocacy groups do. Uh, it's just that these political blogs have a different structure, and so we don't usually put them in the same box as the interest groups. Uh, but yeah. it, just because they don't have an executive director doesn't mean that they're not acting as an interest group. Um, so I, I made this point early on to one of my advisors, uh, and his response was, well, okay, how many of these groups, these, these uh, community blogs are there? And I said, oh, that'll be very easy to tell. Uh, give me a day. Uh, and then I realized that actually because of how fast the blogosphere changes and technology changes, there weren't any tools out there for actually ranking, you know, what are the top 25 blogs out there? So since there was no tool, I went ahead and created one. Um, and it's a really very, very simple tool. What I did is I took a variety of publicly available types of data. So the, the data that is publicly available that you can gather about blog sites uh, includes site traffic, uh, which is messy, messy data, but it is available. Uh, hyperlinks, which are tracked by Technorati. Um, you can track uh, the a number of times that they show up in the blog, uh, the, uh, blog rules of neighboring blogs, of uh, blogs that similarly situate themselves as either on the left or on the right or in the center, though I can tell you there's basically no centrist political blogosphere. There's just nobody there. Um, And you can also take a look. You can count the number of comments that you get in each blog post's comment thread. Uh, Each of those are a measure of influence uh, that are somewhat related but actually are separate, and they're not linearly related, so we can't do one big equation to tie them all together. Uh, so what I actually do is I gather those four types of publicly available data, I convert it to ordinal rankings, uh, and then I kind of com- I just combine those rankings. I jokingly always call it the smush, but you smush the rankings together, and that gives you a top 25 list that changes over time. Uh, I gathered that from I automated the system so we had monthly rankings from 2008 through 2012, uh, and that then has become this is something that actually gets used by a number of different universities now because it's the only tool that we have for studying the top blogosphere. Uh, if you want to know what the top 25 blogs are on the left or the right, uh, or if you want to know how those rankings have changed in the past four years, uh, Blogosphere Authority Index is an imperfect measurement tool, but it's the only measurement tool available, so everybody tends to use it. Yeah. You know, one, one question I had in reading the book was, I've always had the impression that many interest groups can maintain their 501c3 nonprofit status because so much of their money goes to things like chairs and offices and overhead mm-hmm. that when you know you sort of work out their budgets, they end up not spending a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so when the IRS sort of looks at them and says, well, you know, we've got these, these percentages of, of revenue or the percentages of expenditures that have to adhere to certain restrictions and it's, it, it's sort of 20% or whatever the IRS definitions are, mm-hmm. It would, it would seem that a group like Move On, who's basically cut their overhead down to as close to zero as you can, meaning that just about all of their expenditures are for their political mission, how do they maintain a 501c3 status if, if 
all of their activities uh, would seem almost completely dedicated to influencing the political process. Uh, I'm double-checking this right now so I don't misspeak, but I actually don't believe that they are a 501c3. Okay. Um, okay. They have had... Uh, yeah, they're a 501c4. I just double-checked it. Okay. Um, as is Sierra Club, as are a lot of the political groups out there that engage in politics. Um, they, I'm sure, have a 501c3 arm, um, yeah. but primarily they're a C4. They've also had a 527, though they shut that down in, I believe, 2008. Yeah, and I guess even for the 501c4s, they still can't have as their primary mission uh, politics. It has to be a secondary mission, but it's sort of a, uh, just a, a technicality that I was curious about. Yeah. So another thing that occurs uh, to me when in reading this, and this is something I think you obviously have thought about a lot, is so what prevents mainstream interest groups from simply adopting these same tactics. They don't need to be leaders. They can simply mimic the success of groups around them. So what's pre- pre- preventing, you know, your, your, your National Association of Manufacturers, your traditional interest group from simply borrowing all of these same strategies and tactics and, and fundraising in the same manner and organizing in the same manner and, and really carrying out their mission in the, using all of these advantages that have been provided by these other groups. Sure. And we, we do see them starting to move into those areas a bit. They've been trying to update. Um, but what we have is a, a whole mess of structurally induced equilibria. Uh, if you're an organization that already has a direct mail-based membership of, I don't know, let's say uh, 500,000, um, you don't have all of their email addresses, and a lot of them are going to be loath to give you their email address, given what you've been doing with their mailing address over the past decades. Uh, nobody particularly likes being spammed, and nobody's going to trust the old organizations that have been doing the uh, mailing equivalent of spam for a generation. Um, and so you've got a set of stakeholders already existing, uh, and you also have a, a, a structured departmental logic, um, where you, you already have a set of services and a set of skills that you're providing uh, that are what your organizational reputation is based on. Uh, and you also have a bottom line where every year you need to bring in enough revenue to pay for those general overhead costs. Uh, if you're starting a new organization today, you're starting from scratch, then it's very easy to just build a membership list and then serve that membership list. Uh, but if instead you've already got a whole set of departments that need to be funded for another year, then it's very difficult to just jettison what you were doing and instead start doing online fundraising when that's not going to pay for a dozen of your staff or your you know, pension fund or other problems like that. Um, so to, that, that's, again, sort of the, the general disruption, disruptive logic that we see in uh, for-profit industries, uh, and we see it happening in the nonprofit world here. That um, we, I mean, Also, the, another one of the obvious examples is what's happened in the newspaper industry. Um, it wasn't political blogs that killed the newspapers. It was the challenges of the revenue streams that came through Craigslist, that came through Google. Um, and it wasn't, there's a, a scholar named Pablo Boskowski who was doing research in, he's an ethnographer, communication scholar, uh, who was studying how organizations like the New York Times were using technology in the 90s. Uh, and they were actually leading the way in trying to innovate with uh, the Internet. It's not that they didn't pay attention to blogs. Uh, it's that when revenue, the revenue streams got cut, that's when the news crisis hit. Uh, and if you were starting fresh, if you were starting new, and you didn't have any of those uh, financial burdens, then you could fully embrace new technologies in a way that you couldn't for older organizations. Uh, so to be clear, these older organizations, it's not that they don't use email. They send out plenty of email. Uh, it was another one of the empirical portions that we, I have in the book. I call it the Membership Communications Project. I spent six months, I, I signed up uh, for the emails of 70 prominent organizations in the, on the left 
based on a list that, that was produced by uh, the, one of the founders of the Democracy Alliance, which is the large-scale donor community. Uh, so I decided that based on that, we had a, a good, uh, it's not a random sample, um, but it, it, it's a sample of prominent organizations, and I signed up for the emails. Uh, and then I did some basic content analysis on what they were sending out. Um, and perhaps the most interesting finding is that all of these organizations were sending out fundraising emails. But what the older organizations were doing was they were basically taking their direct mail fundraising and just putting it online. That saves a little bit of money, but uh, it's not as effective as what we were seeing from the newer organizations, which is you know, when news is breaking, they go ahead and plan some action around that. And those actions include raising money to put a commercial on the air, raising money for a candidate who just stuck their neck out for the organization. Um, you know, the new organizations, since they don't have the same huge bottom line to fill, are able to be much more nimble than the older organizations. Now, if you were a uh, progressive or a liberal, whatever you call the person, you might say, well, this doesn't really matter to me whether the organization that is acting on my behalf is called Move On mm -hmm. or it's called the you know, Society for Something Else 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. My, my interests are being represented. I've got a voice at the national level. The same couldn't be said of conservatives mm -hmm. and conservative groups. And, and so one would ask, and you, you sort of ponder this in, in the book, you know, is it that conservatives and conservative groups simply don't understand the Internet, don't get the technology? Why is it that we don't see, even in your book, let alone elsewhere, the same level of net roots activity on the right as we do on the left? Right, sure. So, yeah, this is chapter six of the book, and it's the other big contribution I'm trying to make to the literature. Um, is this, this puzzle of why is there no conservative move on? And it's not for lack of trying. Conservatives have noticed the groups like move on, uh, also the site Act Blue, which is a, a giant fundraising site, uh, for progressive candidates or for democratic candidates. Uh, they've noticed these successes from the left and they have tried to duplicate them and they've just failed. Uh, and the standard answer that people intuitively start out with is that, oh, well, this is because of ideology. This is because the internet is an end to end architecture. Uh, and progressives are very horizontal, whereas conservatives are very vertical, and so they just don't fit. Um, and I pretty much reject that. Um, there, there's a little something that's probably going on there. I don't want to say that ideology doesn't matter at all. Um, but when we look, for instance, cross-nationally at the blogosphere in the UK, uh, conservatives led in the blogosphere in the UK, um, whereas progressives led in the blogosphere here. Um, and... Uh, the basic answer that I come up with is what I call out-party innovation incentives. Uh, the, the party that is out of power tends to embrace a new wave of technologies more effectively. Uh, I also think, and this is going to be the subject of a later book, uh, but I think this actually does a nice job of explaining how uh, talk radio got to be talk radio. Uh, again, it's not that progressives have never tried to use talk radio. They, they've launched efforts. Um, but it's a, considered a conservative medium. Um, and the intuitive answer that people always given on that is, oh, there are all these, you know, working class conservatives driving to work and they want to listen to the radio. Uh, and so they've got an audience for that that progressives don't. Uh, the last time I checked, there were, in fact, working class liberals or progressives. Um, with cars. <laughs> with cars, yeah, exactly. They, they drive too. Um, and so when you look, you know, just briefly at the hist history of talk radio, Rush Limbaugh did exist in the 80s, but he didn't get big until he had Clinton to rally against in 1993. That's when he developed his huge audience. Likewise, with Move On, they were pretty small until they had the Bush administration and the Iraq War to mobilize around, uh, 
Uh, and of course, with the Tea Party, we do see uh, the minute Obama comes into office, we suddenly see this grassroots mobilization on the right that wasn't there before. Uh, and there's a history of right-wing grassroots mobilization. This is uh, Scott Paul and Williamson's book, which is wonderful on the Tea Party. Uh, but you know, there's a history of grassroots mobilization on the right whenever uh, somebody from the Democratic Party op- occupies the White House. Uh, and so in general, it appears that the party that's out of power on a few different levels, uh, one is sort of generally it's easier to mobilize people uh, when they feel that uh, the party in power is about to change things. Um, it's easier to build mem- membership. It's easier to fundraise in those areas. Um, but also at the party network level, um, you know, there's a, an article that was written in 2005 after Kerry's loss titled Fire the Consultants. This was by Amy Sullivan. Uh, and her argument was, you know, the Democratic Party keeps on hiring the same people to run our campaigns. Those same people keep on losing. Let's fire them and hire new people. Uh, and a, a colleague and friend of mine, Daniel Kreese, just had a book that came out. Uh, he's a, a sociologist and communication scholar. Uh, but his book just came out uh, called Taking Back Our Country. Um, and it's about the transition from the Dean campaign to the Obama campaign and the new media team that developed around that. Um, the people who started getting the consulting contracts in 2006 and 2008 and took the Democratic Party network uh, into the space that it's in with technology – those are all people that came out of the Dean campaign, pretty much. They're people who weren't getting the consulting c- contracts before. And then since their side was losing, they started getting consulting contracts. Uh, so my hunch is that it's not that Republicans don't understand how to use the Internet. Uh, it's that amongst consultants, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, and the party that loses is the party that then goes hire and hires new people who have skills around technology. Republicans having won throughout the first decade of 21st century kept hiring the same people, and that put them at a disadvantage with technology. Uh, incidentally, we see this same phenomenon uh, in the past four years. Uh, the one area of the Internet where conservatives now lead the way uh, is on Twitter and also on Facebook. So the technologies that ripen, that, that really start to have an impact in politics after Obama was elected, are the only technologies that we see conservatives leading the way in. That, again, suggests to me that it can't be ideology, and that probably what we're seeing here uh, is this out-party innovations phenomenon. Yeah, so let's look ahead a little bit. You mentioned you're not very good at picking stocks in 1990-whatever. You didn't hop on the bandwagon and, and you know, cash in in, in, in other ways. Mm-hmm. But, but you do have the opportunity to look ahead now, mm-hmm. and you have years of sort of being immersed in these technologies and, and their relationship to politics. So... Ten years from now, 15, so let's say even 20 years from now, what are we going to see in the population of interest and advocacy groups? Um, are we going to see, uh, you know, the sort of the same phenomena that we see in the private sector with the emergence of just a handful of big players? Or is the same, you know, large number, diverse niche groups going to be maintained in the future? What do you see? Um, my hunch is that there's a couple of things that we'll need to see how they get worked out and aren't fixed yet. Uh, the biggest is that uh, direct mail was never the only funding stream in town. Uh, you could also fundraise through major donors. You could fundraise through foundations. Um, there are other funding streams that are changing as well. Um, and the, the challenge that's facing the legacy advocacy groups today is how do they make up for the loss of that old funding stream that's not going to come back? Uh, and that's either going to need to come through major donors stepping up in a big way, uh, or it's going to have to come from them finding some other way to generate revenue, or it's going to come from cutting costs. Um, 
I imagine what we're going to see in the advocacy space 10 or 20 years from now is a small number of very large-scale organizations uh, and a large number of small niche groups. Um, and then the bigger question that will be at work in sort of the, the ecology of the space uh, is what gets lost, what gets left out. Um, the real alarm that I've tried to sound for the advocacy professional audience that reads this book um, is that there are a few beneficial inefficiencies that existed in the old funding environment. Uh, direct mail fundraising wasn't great for actually hearing from your members, but it was great for providing enough funding that you could provide uh, trainings, you could provide field campaign, you could provide uh, a set of services that are well needed but hard to fundraise for through foundations. Um, and now that those are going away, and again, there's a, a parallel that I draw with the newspaper industry. Uh, we're not losing newspapers. What we're losing is a set, now the beneficial, beneficial inefficiencies of the old funding environment went away. Uh, the concern is that there's some public interest journalism, there's investigative journalism, there's local journalism that is particularly beneficial but also particularly costly. And so the crisis for journalism is how do we pay for those particular things? Uh, and in the same way, I think the question that's facing the advocacy community is how are they going to pay for trainings? How are they going to pay for in-person meetings? How are they going to pay for field staff when they no longer have this nice, slushy, and efficient funding tool that they used to rely on? Um, and that's something which actually I, I don't have an answer to. I think that that's something they'll need to work out over the coming decades, and there's no clear answer quite yet. Um, but I think we'll have a few large groups. We'll have a lot of niche groups. Uh, we'll see a lot of part. We you already see a lot of partnerships amongst the new networks organizations. I'll see, think we'll see even more of that. Um, you'll have organizations that are better able to listen listen to their membership than the older groups. Uh, one of the nice things about uh, a, the A/B testing that organizations like MoveOn do in their uh, email action alerts, uh, they don't send the same email to everyone. They actually do rigorous tests every day to find out the will of the membership, to find out what sort of issues, what sort of issue frames, what sort of uh, action requests uh, really resonate with the membership, and then that's what they work on. Uh, that's what I call passive democratic feedback, and you're going to see a lot more passive democratic feedback, uh, which actually means that the members of these organizations are better able to be heard, even if it's passively, than they were in uh, previous decades. Uh, that's a positive. Another positive is that these organizations being nimble and working on issues as they appear in the news environment means that there's an awful lot of issues that previously had no interest group representation, uh, and now, at least when those organizations, at least when those issues are in the news, will have some interest group representation. Uh, so we're going to see finer grain representation of a whole array of issues that otherwise got left off the table. Uh, that's a net positive for democracy, I think. Organizations being better able to listen to their membership, that's a net positive for democracy. Uh, but if organizations lose a lot of the organi organizing capacity that they used to have, uh, then you're going to see a hollowing out of the capacity of interest groups to really uh, push their member preferences and have an impact on politics. Dave's book, The Move-On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy, has been published recently by Oxford University Press as part of their Oxford Studies in Digital Politics. Dave, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>